This is a GRDC podcast. Incremental gains are sometimes what farming is all about. Shaving a few dollars off your costs here, getting a few extra kilos of yield there. But imagine the year when you plant, say, a lentil crop and it performs 10% better than any previous lentil crop you've grown. They're the type of step change gains that a new project being run out of Agriculture Victoria is aiming to produce. The project is part of the Victorian Grains Innovation Partnership between the Victorian Government and GRDC, which aims to increase the profitability of southern grain growers through world-class research. Right now, it's at the desktop study stage, but I caught up with Agriculture Victoria research scientist Gary Rosebourne in a greenhouse at Horsham, where he explained what his team was hoping to achieve. It always comes back to where's the next big step change coming? What's yeah. what's transformational about work that we can do that's going to lift crop yield? Like I'm a plant breeder and, and we go along and we make good productivity gains, maybe 1% a year, and that's a pretty good outcome yeah. for us. But we're talking about what's one thing we could do that could maybe give us 10%. Wow. How yeah. are we going to do that? You, you think that's, that's out there? That's what we try and do. It's been done before, yeah. uh, but of course there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there that yeah. have been taken up and we have to work out, particularly in, in cereals and stuff, is that low-hanging fruit still out there for the pulses? And can we try and tap into the, the research that's been done elsewhere in other crops that have had more investment over a longer term? And how can we apply that to pulses and see where we go? So what are you actually looking at in terms of improving the crops, improving different varieties or bringing new varieties on? The basic idea behind the project is to try to get synergistic gains between looking at what we call crop physiology, so that's like the canopy architecture or the days to flowering or days to maturity, something that fits in a farming system in any given region, and combining that with, say, novel agronomic approaches or, or, or tried and proven agronomic approaches and putting those two things together. For an example, if you want to take lentils from, say, the Wimmera, where there's a core amount of lentils are growing, and we want to try to expand it up into the Mallee region where it's drier, first we say, well, what are the constraints in the Mallee? And we know water's going to be a major constraint. So then, well, how are we going to deal with water? When we look at what happens in wheat when they put wheat into drier environments, or they go for the shorter season wheats. So there's a maturity thing we want to do there. But you, you also have to marry that with, well, what's the optimal sowing time? So we might have to do some work around that as well. So then you say the agronomic approach is, well, getting the right sowing time and targeting the right maturity, but then the physiology comes in, what variety have we got that fits that window? Moving the crops into areas where they haven't been grown previously, is that a big part of the project? We want to address constraints. We want to increase the footprint of the pulses because yeah. pulses are generally a, a more valuable crop than the cereals, but they, but they may not yield as well, and particularly when you're going into harsher environments or just mm. environments they're not suited to so much. The trials that you're doing, as you said, you're talking about plant architecture. We're in the igloo here, uh, the greenhouse. Show me what you've got here that could translate into the project. I'll start off with the lower value crop, the peas, but mainly because so much work has been done, you know, with Mendel coming through in the 1700s or something and <laughs> doing all his classical genetics back then, he was looking at a lot of single gene traits and they dramatically changed the plant architecture. And in the pea breeding program, we have got examples of where we've introduced new plant architectures and they've transformed 
the farming system to growing peas. So, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, they were growing peas with trailing vine type peas that would crawl along the ground in, in like a vine type fashion. And then in 2002, we released a variety called Casper, converted a, a complex compound leaf into a mass of tendrils. And with these tendrils all interlocking, it creates a much more stable canopy that stays up even at maturity, whereas yeah. the old conventional peas, they'll fall over and you've actually got to pick them up off the ground like so rock, it makes carpet. harvesting a lot better, a lot easier. <coughs> it made harvesting so much easier and yeah. within a few years, 95% of the peas had converted yeah. to these new, yeah. this new pea type. If you were going <coughs> to select peas, where would you go from there? We've come across some other different architectural types as well mm. in the peas that other people have thoughts about and we'd yeah. like to test them out. Such as what? <clears throat> well, one is called the lupinoid pea down here and the lupinoid pea has got two single genes. One gene is called fasciation and you can see it's sort of changed the stem structure. It's got a, a bit of a flatter and, and ribbed sort of stem on it. Mm. And then it's also got another, another single gene in there called determinancy and that means it all flowers at once. A bit like wheat, it flowers once and then it stops flowering whereas most of the pulses are indeterminate. They'll start to flower, they'll put a few pods on, they'll continue flower, put a few more pods on. So this all flowers <coughs> at the top, is it? The combination of those two genes they've shown is that, yeah, all the flowers form at the top and form a nice big cluster of flowers. And so you think, well, what, what's that going to do for harvestability? Does that mean the farmer can come through and set his cutting bars a bit higher and leave a bit more stubble behind, or, or what does it mean? Mm. So they're the sort of questions we might want to answer. Yeah, yeah, and you called it a lupinoid. That's this is a lupinoid pea, so the archetypal plant would be the lupin, which sort of flowers like that naturally. So does any of the work you're doing in the field peas, does that translate to other crops? What we think about the field peas is that they're probably quite a good model plant to work with. We'll probably do a bit of work on the field peas because they've got a lot of biomass, and we've got a lot of these single gene mutants, like up to 400 mutants that we can draw upon to look at that. We don't quite have those genetic resources in, say, the lentils and the chickpeas, mm. but the lentils and chickpeas are probably higher value crops, so it's probably more the direction we're going to go in. But there is a lot of variation, and so I, as I said, I oversee the field pea and lentil breeding program, so I get to see a lot of germplasm that comes through, and we do have a lot of variation. So when we talk about things like early vigour, we have a whole range of early vigour in the lentils. We talk about different days to flowering, we've got some variation for that. Different days to maturity, we've got variation for that. The general canopy architecture, so we've got some plant types that are very upright, they just stand up straight. And even at maturity, in a good season, you can still see the ground between the rows. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, if you can still see the dirt, then, well, are you really maximising all the light that you're mm. using that's, mm. that's coming down? Well, maybe not. But these upright plants are very good for certain farming systems, particularly in some of the drier environments, we find that they are preferable. The plant architecture sounds like one of the major issues that you're addressing across all the pulses. I think that's going to be the first port of call for us. When we talk about physiology, it gets quite complicated. Mm. So given that we're just really starting this sort of work in some of these pulse crops, we probably want to start at the broader scale where we want to try to screen a whole lot of germplasm and how are we going to screen it? Well, we're going to look for different plant archetypes, you know, different architectural types, different phenological types. We're also looking at the roots as well. So we've got a whole suite of root studies and we actually don't know very much about the roots at all. How do the roots grow? Do we see the similar sorts of architectural differences in the roots as what we see in the plant? What so do you mean by that? Some of the plant types we've got may grow very prostrate on the ground. Mm. In other words, it's grow very erect. Well, is the same thing happening in the roots? Do the roots spread out, just grow underneath the surface, or do they grow down deep looking for more water? And how can we fit that with the farming system? So there's a lot of work being done on wheat, say, in the tropics. They grow wheat in the dry season. They start with a full soil profile, 
and then as the plants grow they find well they want the wheat plants that chase the water down the soil mm. profile. Yep. They use it up in the surface and they keep on putting the roots down deeper and deeper and deeper. Is that suitable for our sort of systems? Can we find that sort of variation in the pulses? And is it going to suit? Now it may not suit the mallee where you get this ephemeral sort of rainfall events through the year, you may want a very shallow root system. One that can, can just chase the surface water. Yeah, and just pick it up really quickly and yeah. get, it, get it in. Or else maybe you've got some heavier soils that are holding that water or you've gone into fallow or something yeah. like that. Maybe you do want a deeper rooting system for that. Yeah. But then you have a deeper rooting system, what are you going to do when you hit a subsoil constraint like a layer of boron? Well then we've got traits around boron tolerance and they can grow through that subsoil constraint and still chase the water. So they're the sort of questions we want to ask. Wow, a million questions, Gary. <laughs> we've got to try to say that this desktop study, first six months, and we're coming towards the end of that now, is really going to try to separate all that. So there's, there's yeah. too many questions to ask. So we want to really hone in and focus on where's the bang for the buck going to come from? The biggest bang for the buck going to come from? And so we're going to look at the different crops and see where they are growing, see where their potential expansion zones are, see what variation in traits they've got, both aerial and below ground traits, see what agronomic practices we can overlay with that, and then try to put some sort of package together that can really give us some sort of stepwise gain in productivity for one or all of the pulses. Mm. And is this then going to translate into a breeding project after that? One thing I haven't touched on, we've got crop modellers on board as well with the project. So they're the ones that come on board and say, oh look, you know, here's when your average opening rains are for this sort of region and, and here's where your, your last frost event is. So you want to avoid flowering till that. Here's when the heat spells come in in this sort of region. Mm. So if we can map the regions like that and put it into the crop models, then they can give us what we call a plant idiotype like a, some sort of combination of traits that we want to put together that are going to give that and so we can then use the modelers to do that so we're going to try to look at about six sites a year from the high rainfall zone medium and low rainfall zone and try to characterize put economic values on these traits that we look at from there the modelers can take that and expand that in time and space beyond the six sites that we look at and beyond the three and a half year time frame we've got to do this work and also combining traits that we don't actually have we may not have the perfect plant, or we won't have the perfect plant type. We may say, okay, we want to have this lentil plant that grows up to half a metre high, and we want it to have early vigour, we want to have a, a flowering and maturity time of X and Y, or whatever it is, and how that's going to fit together, and a canopy structure of, you know, very prostrate, or whatever it's going to be. But we don't have one plant that does all that. Yeah. So we'll have different plants that do components of that. We try to measure them, and they put it together in this theoretical idiotype. And then we can go off at the end of three and a half years, we'll go off to the breeders and we'll say, we think if you want to get lentils into the mallee, you need a plant that looks like this. You go and spend the next 10 years breeding for it. Yeah. Right? Such it's, a shame, it's such a long lead time, isn't it? <laughs> well, we, you know, we, we... It sounds very exciting work. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it is really good. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is pretty exciting and quite inspiring to witness the energy being brought to the task. Thanks, Gary. Gary Roseborn is a research scientist with Agriculture Victoria. My name is Chris Brown.